you just knew we were going to get there. Uh, Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. You just, you knew it. You knew it. You knew it. You, you knew this was going to happen. Uh, they, they, we've moved now uh, into the debate over whether Americans have too much freedom. That's right. Uh, you're all going to die because America is too free. If only we were more like those other countries. Uh, this is so maddeningly predictable. It really is. Uh, hang on one second. Let me, let me, I, I just got this. Uh, audio. Um, let me let me pull this up. This happened on MSNBC. This is a reporter from Vice, Anand uh, Gritaradas. Uh, I'm I'm sure I'm butchering his name. Uh, he's the host of Seat at the Table, a Vice on TV. He's on MSNBC. Listen to this. One of the the fundamental questions to me is what's going to be our relationship to government? The idea of government after this, and and we kind of look at it at three levels this week. There is a primordial American tradition going back to the founders of being freedom obsessed, even though we're a country founded on slavery and genocide, being freedom obsessed to the point that we are always so afraid of the government coming for us that we are blind to other types of threats, whether it's a virus, whether it's bank malfeasance or what have, climate change, what have you. Um, there's also a more, a, a more recent kind of 40-year version of this, which is the Reagan war on government, right? Government is the problem. That's not just an idea on the right. There's a hard version on the right. There's a small-c conservative militant version of it. But there's also, it, it has infected many people on the left in, in, in this passive sense that, yeah, I believe in government, but I would never go work there. Or I believe in government, but, you know, I kind of don't like my taxes too high or I use, you know, trust in the Cayman Islands. Um, so, And then there's the more recent Trump era twist in this, which is the war on government becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You undermine government, you undermine it, you undermine it. You put someone who can barely read a sentence in government, in, in the figure of Donald Trump, and it becomes true that government sucks because you've made it suck by telling everybody it sucks. And I think the most important thing that could come out of this is realizing that government is not the biggest threat to our liberty. It can be a threat to our liberty, but we're threatened by many, many things. And what government fundamentally does is protect us from a lot of those other oppressions that we in America are often quite blind to. Uh, those other oppressions that we are oftentimes quite blind to. <laughs> you knew this was going to happen. You just knew it was going to. Oh, you people want to open your businesses. You're a threat. You're you're the threat. Government's protecting us from you. That's ultimately we get here. By the way, uh, Donald Trump could not run for president telling people government sucks if government did not suck. You know, Donald Trump was able to point out government is working less and less for people. Now, listen, I didn't support the guy in 2016. I, I actually uh, was much more aligned with, uh, well, hell, I was aligned with everybody but him. Yeah, he was my last choice. Uh, but uh, really, Cruz in particular was the guy I uh, identified with the, the most. He and I are friends, and, and Marco Rubio as well. Uh, Rubio and I are friends. And uh, I... I uh, you know, I met with Jeb Bush, who I like, and told him I, he, I wasn't going to support him. And the reason I wasn't going to support Jeb Bush, and, and again, I, I sat down with Jeb Bush in private. I had this conversation with him, told him he's a very nice guy. Uh, you know, back in the 90s, when, so when I was a, a teenager, uh, the Bushes were a big thing. I mean, obviously. And uh, Jeb was the guy. 
Jeb was going to beat Lawton Childs in Florida. He was the conservative in the Bush household. And he was he was going to become governor of Florida and he would become president. And he lost. And surprise, the loser son, George W., is the one who won. And, and then he went on to become president. And Jeb never got there. And I told Jeb, I said, here's my problem why I can't support you. I said, because if we get back to Clinton versus Bush, it's an admission that we can do no better than beyond two families in this country, and we're not a a, a family of monarchy. And as much as I, I I do like Jeb Bush, but he's he's no longer as as conservative as I would have liked. He he's not the aggressive small government guy. Neither is Trump, by the way. Uh, in fact, Trump is is inarguably growing government at rates that I, as a conservative, are uncomfortable with. Uh, but but that's fine. But Donald Trump, Jeb Bush, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, the, the other three billion people who ran for president in 2016 as Republicans, they all ran uh, on on issues related to government. And it's not that they were wrong. They were right. And you've got a guy like this who is a liberal who believes that government, he can't acknowledge that government is malfunctioned. Government is broken. And in fact, they you've got the, the left says there's a problem with inequality, which I do want to get to at some point today. The left says there's a problem with inequality in America, and they're right, but they got the wrong solution. Their solution is more government. You know, it, it's not a coincidence that as uh, government spending has grown and government involvement in our lives has grown in the last 40, 30 years, really, after Reagan, when, when, when uh, Bill Clinton came into office and started growing again, even under big government conservatives like Bush, there's really no such thing, but that's what Bush wanted to call himself, inequality has risen. There's a grand spike in inequality when Clinton becomes president, when the government starts involving itself in our lives again after the Reagan revolution, inequality grows. And the problem here, of course, is that uh, Democrats believe we should take from the haves and give to the have-nots, uh, communism, quasi-communism. And they never contemplate that making the have-nots become halves. And there, there's a fundamental problem here. This, this idea, though, that um, our freedom is the problem, but it's not just him. This is perfect timing because it was coincidental that these two things happened at the same time. Let me pull up this story from the New York Times, from Charlie Warzel. I, I believe he was a BuzzFeed writer. He's now an opinion writer at large for the New York Times. And I gotta tell you, this strikes me as something that people on the left will see as smart but actually is not smart. You know the sort of thing. Um, uh, okay, um, the, the, uh, what, what is the, the cartoon, The Watchmen, um, the, the science fiction series? They actually filmed part of it for HBO here in Macon. Uh, it was going to be this grand thing. It was going to be the next Game of Thrones. And oh, the left, it was so smart. It was, a, it was a commentary on the Trump years by looking into the past and race and all this. It got canceled after a year. Nobody was interested. Nobody cared about it. Uh, it. It sounded smarter than it was. There are all sorts of things on the left these days. You know, just pause. Just going to pause. I grew up in the Middle East. I graduated actually from rural Louisiana, from a public school. And I knew that I was better educated overwhelmingly than the kids in my high school. And I don't mean that arrogantly or disparagingly. I had had an amazing education. The overwhelming majority of my graduating high school class had not been much out of the state of Louisiana. 
maybe into Mississippi, which was 30 minutes away. I have still to this day, I'm in my uh, early 40s now, early 40s. I'm not in my mid 40s yet. (laughs) And I've still been to more countries than states. I had an amazing education overseas. My ninth grade class field trip was to Greece for two weeks and to Turkey. What an amazing education. And then I went to uh, Georgia, to Mercer. I had a scholarship to go to Duke. I wound up not going to Duke because uh, when I went through Macon, Georgia, and toured Mercer, I had never left Louisiana. Now, I knew I wanted to leave Louisiana. After the Edwin Edwards-David Duke race when I was in high school, there was no way I was staying in that state. It was just, it was a, it was a miserable place. I love my family. I love where we live, but I wanted to leave. And so I went to Macon, and man, it, it was neat. Uh, it was, it was a, Macon has a small town vibe. In fact, part of Macon's problem is it's never decided, is it a town or a city? And, it, but Mercer was neat. Uh, it's nothing now like it, what it was then. It, it's so much bigger now than it was, but the people are still really friendly. And when I went for, for a tour of the college campus with my dad, that's actually, this is the trip I discovered Rush Limbaugh with my dad. We were looking for Paul Harvey. We discovered Rush Limbaugh and, and never looked back on this trip, father-son trip. And then we went up to Virginia. My, my sister and brother-in-law lived up in Virginia, and Old Dominion was near there. And, of course, Georgetown was near there, and I really would have loved to have gone to Georgetown. I love Washington, D.C. I'd never been at this point in my life. And then we went to Duke, and I love Duke, but it was a stunning contrast. The people at Mercer wanted me to know that I would be a part of something and that uh, they wanted me there. They wanted me to be a part of it. And when I went to Duke, Duke is Duke. Duke is gorgeous. The campus is gorgeous. The area is amazing. You've got Duke basketball. But I was really disappointed in that it was very much a – I need them. They don't need me. At Mercer, it was a, we need you to be a part of something. And at Duke, it was very much a, I should be, I should want to be there. They don't necessarily need to want me. And I wound up getting a scholarship offer to both. And I wound up going to Mercer. And I'm glad I did. I met my wife there. Um, It's just, it's fantastic that uh, I met my wife and I still live in Macon all these years later. Uh, Whether it started in 93 uh, stayed for law school, went to Mercer Law School, and I stayed. I practiced law for six years and uh, now do radio, uh, completely different. In, in fact, you know, Kathy Cox, the, the dean of the law school, reached out the other day to see if I'd film a little uh, snippet of something just congratulating the, the graduating class. Boy, I'm like, <laughs> are the faculty okay with this? <laughs> I know. I, look, I, I, I loved, um, I got a, a top-notch education at Mercer Law School and Mercer University. I did. But here, here's my point of, of giving you my, my bio. Um, I did all of this, and then I my career took a change, deviating greatly from most of my peers in law, pretty much all of my peers in law school. Um, we, so I practiced law in Macon, and then I got a job in politics. I started Red State. Well, some friends started redstate.com. They put me in charge of it, and my career trajectory just went off. It was very, very random, very wild. And I wound up in 2000, at the end of 2009 on CNN. I'll never forget, uh, they put me up against James Carville one night. And James Carville was my final test to see if I was CNN caliber. 
And I held my own against James Carville, and that night he took me out. And he was so proud that a kid from Jackson, Louisiana, which if you knew Jackson, Louisiana, you would understand. Uh, we, we sat at this bar, uh, Mary Matlin, James Carville, and I. And James looked at Mary, and he said, I am, he said it as James Carville only can. I'm so proud of him. Mary, you don't understand. If you looked up poop hole in the dictionary, you would find Jackson, Louisiana, that the town that I'm from. James is, knows it very familiar. He had a relative who uh, stayed in a nursing facility near there. And he said, and, and this boy made it out. And, and you know, there aren't a lot of people in my high school class who did. So I got on CNN and I went to Fox. And here are these people who they're better educated than me. They went to, to Ivy League schools. They were involved in politics longer than me. They've worked for presidents of the United States. They've worked for members of Congress. And I'm just a former lawyer and blogger from Macon, Georgia. And it dawned on me after a while, a lot of these people really aren't that smart. They're, they're certainly not smarter than me. Some of them are. Some of them actually are really brilliant people on the left and the right. But most of them weren't. In fact, the dirty little secret is that most of the people on TV who have a political consultant or political strategist after their name, uh, they slept with someone in a campaign office and that gave them their qualifications or they licked envelopes in the back office and they never actually did anything. And, and I actually became friends with people like Begala and Carville and Donna Brazil and Alex Castellanos uh, and, and uh, a, a number of the other people there on the left and the right and David Gergen, for example, because I had actually done those things. I, I had actually designed mail campaigns for, for politicians. I had done polling for politicians. I had cut ads for politicians. And so many of the people who go on TV are posers, and they're not real. And, and what you learn is that what they're really good at, what they really excel at, is something I've always kind of been bad at and gets me into trouble with even you people sometimes, is they're really good at telling you what you want to hear and making it sound smart. And not only do I sometimes not make stuff sound smart, but I, I'm really bad at telling you what you want to hear. I, I, I tell you what I think, and I this is why I keep an open phone line here. You can call in, and you can completely disagree with me. And I am totally okay if you want to disagree with me. And we can have a polite conversation about it. And it's often, I, I, I find the troubling thing is that there are fewer people willing to have a polite conversation and disagreement. And, and thankfully, most of you guys are great about it. We can call in, you can call in, we can disagree, we can have a conversation. Although I have to be mindful of the clock, which is what some people forget. They think when I cut them off that I'm just trying to win the argument. No, I got a clock. In fact, I'm, I'm about to spill into it. But it, so I say all of that, and, and now I do have to take a commercial break here before I get to it, because there's a piece that's getting a lot of buzz of the New York Times by this Charlie Warzel person. And a lot of the left is going to look at this and they're going to say, wow, this is deeply insightful. But really, it's just what they want to hear. And it's gussied up enough so that they don't have to think, you know, the argument's actually really shallow. But it's yet another one of these pieces that I'm sure we're going to see more and more of on the left deciding freedom really is a bad thing. And the people who want to be free, they're the problem. It's not the virus anymore, people. It's you who are the problem. And this has gone kind of, it's been buried in the last several months as we've dealt with this global pandemic. But the reality is it hasn't ever gone away. And on the left, the problem has never been a microbe. It's been a Trump voter.
So I did some terrible clock management there with that monologue because now I've got this short segment here. I'll take your phone calls, by the way. 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. So we got this Charlie Warzel piece. It it sounds way smarter than it actually is when you delve into it. Here's the headline and the subtitle. Headline, open states, lots of guns. America is paying a heavy price for freedom. And the subheadline, subtitle, this country seems resigned to preventable firearm deaths. It appears that the same is starting to happen with fatalities from the pandemic. The coronavirus scenario I can't stop thinking about is the one where we simply get used to all the dying. I first saw it on Twitter. Someone poked holes in the scenario. A tweet from Eric Nelson, the editorial director of Broadside Books, read, We keep losing 1,000 to 2,000 a day to coronavirus. People get used to it. We get less vigilant as it very slowly spreads. By December, we're close to normal, but still losing 1,500 a day. And as we tick past 300,000 dead, most people aren't concerned. That hit me like a ton of bricks because of just how plausible it seemed. The day I read Mr. Nelson's tweet, 1,723 Americans were reported to have died from the virus. And yet their collective passing was hardly mourned. After all, how to distinguish those souls from the 2097 who perished the day before or the 1,558 who died the day after? Such loss of life is hard to comprehend when it's not happening in front of your own two eyes. Add to it that humans are adaptable creatures, no matter how nightmarish the scenario, and it seems understandable that our outrage would dull over time. Unsure how or perhaps unable to process tragedy at scale, we get used to it. There's also a national precedent for Mr. Nelson's hypothetical, America's response to gun violence and school shootings. As a country, we seem resigned to preventable firearm deaths. Each year, 36,000 Americans are killed by guns, roughly 100 per day, most from suicide, according to data from the Giffords Law Center. Similarly, the Every Town for Gun Safety Support Fund calculates there have been 583 incidents of gunfire on school grounds since 2013. In the first eight months of 2019, there were at least 38 mass shootings. The Times reports last August, 53 Americans died in mass shootings at work at bars while shopping with their children. We should stop right there and note that many of these uh, are... Uh, how shall we say, um, widely uh, questioned numbers. You know, the, the gun violence report on schools, if you uh, if you don't go by the FBI statistics and you go by some of these outside groups, if someone fires a gun near a school, it's considered a gun uh, school shooting. If there's an accidental discharge by a law enforcement officer or, or a school security guard, it's a school shooting, on and on it goes. Some of these tragedies make national headlines, many don't. The bigger school shootings and hate crime massacres can ignite genuine moral outrage and revive familiar debates over safe storage practices, gun show loopholes, red flag laws, bump stocks, comprehensive background checks, strident licensing systems, and of course, the accessibility of endlessly customizable semi-automatic weapons like AR-15s. In every case, the death toll climbs. Blah, 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 blah. On it goes. Let me get down to the bottom here, though. The idea of freedom is also an excuse to serve oneself before others and a shield to hide from responsibility. In the gun rights fight, 
The freedom manifests in firearms falling into unstable hands. During the pandemic, that freedom manifests in rejections of masks, despite evidence to suggest they protect both the wearers and the people around them. It manifests in a rejection of public health. We'll get into this, and I'll take your calls when we come back. Hello, welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. So the New York Times, this piece, if you're just tuning in, uh, that basically, um, because Americans, I just, I'm, this thing frustrates me. Because of guns, we're going to get used to all of the dying and because we're going to get used to all of the dying uh we're never going to do anything about COVID 19. Let, let me let me just give you the nutshell here here at the bottom as in the gun control debate public opinion public health and the public good seem poised to lose out to a select set of personal freedoms but it's a child's two-dimensional view of freedom one where any suggestion of collective duty and responsibility for others become the chains of tyranny. This idea of freedom is also an excuse to serve oneself because others uh, before others and a shield to hide from responsibility. In the gun rights freedom, the freedom manifests in firearms falling into unstable hands during a pandemic that freedom manifests in rejections of masks despite evidence to suggest they protect both the wearers and the people around them. It manifests in a rejection of public health by those who don't believe their actions affect others. In this narrow worldview, freedom has a price in the form of an acceptable amount of human lives lost. It's a price that will be calculated and then set by a select few. The rest of us merely pay it. You know, first of all, it's really rich for someone who supports abortion rights to to write something like this. How many children die every day because they're ripped limb from limb in, in the name of freedom? I I mean, it's a relevant point. I, I, I have a hard time treating seriously the people who believe all life is precious all of a sudden when they've been willing to execute children every day of their lives uh, in the name of constitutional rights. Andrew Cuomo talking on TV about how every life is precious and we can't leave our houses until grandma in the nursing home is safe from the virus. What about the child in the womb? But there's something else here too. And, and what part of this agrees in is it's one of my new favorite terms and I don't know who coined it, but I embrace as my own nut picking, nut pick. No, get your minds out of the gutter people. No, 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 no. Nut picking. It's where you pick uh, one or two fringy people and describe an entire class of people by those couple of fringe people. You know, There is a resistance of some to be required to wear masks in public, but they're in the vast minority. Uh, Majority of Republicans right now think we're moving too quick to reopen states. Majority of Democrats and independents agree. I know those of you who listen to talk radio uh, by propensity tend to be on the side of we should have never closed, uh, but actually you're in the minority. Overwhelming majority of Republicans, like 60% of Republicans, 80% of Democrats, 65, I think, percent of independents think we're moving too quick. And don't give me the polls are wrong. But uh, you're you're not picking when, when you the few people who are upset about it. You can't make me wear a mask. You can't wear a mask. Um, that, that's nut picking. That that's actually the the fringe. A lot of people aren't wearing masks. Because they're just not in the habit of doing it. 
It's not that they resist it. You're, you're not picking, but here's the other thing. Um, what Charlie Wurzel at the New York Times is essentially saying in, in the gun debate, uh, let me read you this sentence. In the gun rights freedom, that freedom manifests in firearms falling into unstable hands. That is That is a trope of the left that is not true. How many of the mass shootings were from lawfully purchased firearms? I believe the school in Florida was, but overwhelmingly they're not. Many times it's stolen guns. And see, it's a constant thing, and Wurzel is one of them, that we need more laws, we need more laws. Uh, You can't show me a law that would have prevented some of these crises short of gun confiscation, which is ultimately what he wants. He can't admit it because that destroys his argument. But what I find insulting here, and this is why I went through the entire discourse of why this is going to sound smart to a whole lot of people. Maybe some of you it sounds smart to you. Here's why it's not. Because like so many of the left's arguments about the right these days, they don't actually have a grasp of the arguments. I, this is one of those things. This goes back to my opening monologue of being on TV with people I always assumed were way smarter than me, just given my background versus their background, and then realizing, no, actually, and, and what, what sets us apart is that they don't really understand my side's arguments. You know, so I went to law school, and I practiced law for a number of years. And I thought, and I bet most of you, if you've never been to law school, I bet most of you thought that when you go to law school, what you learn is the law. You don't actually learn the law when you go to law school. I mean, you learn aspects of it, but you don't actually, law school is not about teaching you the law. Law school is about teaching you to think. Law school is about teaching you to discern, teaching you to read, teaching you to distinguish, teaching you to nuance teaching you how to make better arguments, teaching you really how to research. There's too much law for law school to teach you the law. You learn the basic parameters of the law and in learning the basic parameters of property law, the basic rules of of tort law, the basic rules of contract law and sales law, the, the basic statutory law everyone needs to know. What you're really doing is you're learning how to write and read and think and research and discern and decide and make an argument, not argue as in yelling at someone, but actually to stake out a position and defend it. That's what law school is about. And I, I, the people who went to law school, I, I think that I encountered on TV, tended to do a better job than others. Law school, think of law school as, you know, law school used to be kind of your bachelor's degree. And it's just, it's, it's, it's interesting that we've lost the ability to research, to learn, to decide, to think, to argue. And we now leave it to others to make cases by using uh, multi-syllable words that make things sound good when they're not necessarily uh, able to understand the argument. And, and this is one of the things that, that I'm getting at here is that one of the, the, the traits in law school about learning to think and learning to argue and learning to research is you have to be able to appreciate the other side's argument. And this is one of the great failings of the left in America today is I, as a conservative, because I am more likely to encounter a progressive and better able to articulate a progressive's position, 
then a progressive is able to articulate a conservative's position. You see this most frequently when it comes to abortion rights. I, as a conservative, understand and could articulate the arguments of a progressive on abortion. I know their arguments. What I am dumbfounded by is the inability of a progressive to appreciate or or articulate the arguments on the right. And the reason the left can get to a point where they never have to understand the right's arguments and be able to respond to them as they actually are, as opposed to what the left believes they are, the caricature of them, is because no one in the media challenges them. Because so many people in the media are also of the left, that the people on the left, they're never bothered, they're never challenged. It's You know, so when I was on CNN, listen, I've got a lot of respect for CNN. I'm critical of CNN because I like the network so much. I have a lot of friends who work there, uh, and I think that they do do a very good job in most cases. They're daytime shows, and they're now late night, Chris Cuomo and and Don Lemon, no. Uh, But Anderson Cooper, I think, is actually very fair. John King, Jake Tapper, Will Blitzer, they're, they're good people. I know them. They're friends of mine, and I think they do good jobs. Uh, I don't always agree with them, but that doesn't mean I don't think they're good people and, and that they, they try to understand the opinions and arguments of, of people on the other side. But by and large, even as some of these, these anchors at, at CNN, they don't do a good job of that. And it's, it's, I'm I'm frustrated by it, by the caricatures that are allowed on TV. Take Don Lemon, for example, going after Melania Trump the other night. You know, if someone went after Michelle Obama or, or Laura Bush back in the day or anyone else, uh, they, they would be savaged by the media. And, and here he gets a complete pass by going after Melania Trump because she's married to Donald Trump. But Don Lemon is someone who, who he lived in Atlanta lived in Midtown Atlanta. He worked at Atlanta uh, for, for CNN in Atlanta. And, and he's he's lived in the South and, and he has a hard time uh, not resorting to caricature of people he disagrees with. And it's sad to see because I know the guy and I know he's better than that. I know he's more capable than that, but he's not doing it because he's gotten complacent. And, and you see that more and more on CNN. You really see it on MSNBC where you never have to treat the right's argument seriously. And when I was at CNN, for example, when there was a pro-life situation, I always had a practice of declining to talk about abortion on CNN and instead would recommend an ample number of pro-life women to go on because I knew what they were doing. And inevitably, those women would never get phone calls. They would find a man who was willing to go on and talk about abortion. And so it was always the typically the female anchor with the female pro-abortion advocate versus the man telling them they can't have an abortion. And it was all about the design of the argument for TV. It's always the pro-life man versus the pro-abortion woman. You never, ever, ever will see on TV, rare exception, will you see a pro-life woman. And I've got a list of, of wonderfully pro-life women who are willing to go on television who know the left's arguments better than the left does. And, and they will never, except on Fox, you'll never see them on TV. They always put on the female pro-abortion advocate, though. This is a design on TV a way to shape the argument. When it comes to life, the right understands the argument. So, so here's the thing with, with Wurzel. There's something you do not read in his piece. And you don't read any reference to constitutional rights when it comes to the Second Amendment. More importantly, you don't read anything about the actual arguments for why people are ready to go back to work. It's deeply insulting to the small business owner who's on the verge of bankruptcy. 
it is deeply insulting to the unemployed person who made so much money last year, they couldn't get their $1,200 from the government. It is deeply insulting to the business owner who can't get unemployment, that $600 a week from the federal government. He doesn't want to acknowledge that that side of the argument exists. And to be an honest broker in something like this, you need to be. This will scratch the itch of the people on the left who believe that conservatives are the problem, but it doesn't actually do anything to advance a real argument. It resorts to caricature to advance the argument, and increasingly we're going to see this. I I played you the audio at the beginning of the show on the guy on on MSNBC. It's all about it's freedom, it's freedom, and and freedom. It's these people who want to be free, these people who want to be out of their house. They're the blight. It's these people who say freedom is what we need who are the problem. It it is amazing how many people on the, the left... are willing to descend into caricature because they can't actually win the argument, but more than that, they can't articulate the argument of the other side right now. I'm in the shelter-in-place camp. I'm in the camp that thinks we actually are opening earlier than we should. I'm in the camp that thinks we need to be mindful, however, that we've got leaders in charge who have to balance those of us who are concerned about opening too soon with those who are about to be wiped out financially. And they're doing the best they can, and we should show them grace. This is uncharted territory. Everyone is improvising. There is not a single governor or president or administration official or state legislator anywhere or, or even healthcare public policy expert who actually really knows what they're doing right now. Everyone is improvising. No one's ever seen anything like this in our lifetimes. All we have are history books to tell us about the Spanish flu, and we didn't have the medical apparatus and institutions and communications channels that we have now that we or that existed then. We got way better now. Everybody's improvising, which is why I, I continue to think we, we got to show grace. You know, I'm noticing there are all these 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 pundits on TV now who are coming out with books on grace. I've been talking about this for several years. We need to show more of it particularly at a time like now where we've got way too many people in politics who are winging it because they don't know any better. We've never seen anything like this. And what we're seeing on both sides, but really now on the left, it, it is building steam quickly is this descent back to caricature of the other side. And essentially, they're telling us out loud what they've thought in quiet for a while, that we have too much freedom as Americans. We actually need to be a little more loyal to the government. We need more fealty to the government. It's no longer a government of the people, for the people, by the people. It's a people of the government, a people for the government, and people by the government. That that seems to be the left view here. Freedom is not bad. Yes, freedom comes with responsibility, Spider-Man, Uncle Ben. We get that. Where great power comes great responsibility. With great freedom comes great responsibility. We have to be responsible to other people. Our freedom does not exist in a vacuum. When our freedom encroaches on someone else's freedom, we have problems. That's where the law steps in. That's where the government is supposed to step in. But here's the thing. We have a real meltdown in this country on the government's inability to keep senior citizens in long-term care facilities safe. And overwhelmingly, these daily numbers, half of them are people dying in long-term care facilities. Many of those with strident government regulation and oversight. And the government failed there. Not the people, the government did. The idea that the government is gonna make us more safe if we would surrender our freedom to it is absurd and historically wrong.
But to say that, to contrast gun rights with, with the virus and say, oh, we're so used to all the death from guns, we're going to be used to the death from the virus. We don't even remember. the He doesn't remember all the people who died yesterday either. Guess what? The media is not reporting the names on a daily basis. They don't do it for the flu. They don't do it for cancer. But, you know, there are going to be millions of people this year who participate in walks to raise money for cancer. There are going to be people who do runs for cancer. There are going to be people who do uh, walks and petitions to raise awareness on gun violence. We'll be doing it for COVID-19, I guess, if we can't find a vaccine. But to, to take a novel coronavirus and the fallout from a global pandemic we've never experienced and to try to force it into the box of gun control to try to make a point that sounds smart while being completely oblivious to the people who are going bankrupt and the small businesses that will never come back into business. It may sound smart to the left right now to do stuff like that, to to let out what they haven't been able to do in two months, which is to express their contempt for conservatives. But it doesn't actually advance an argument, and it actually, when you get into it, it's really not as smart as they think. While we're joy, by the way, so first of all, those of you who've ever listened to my evening show know I got to stop every six minutes and check traffic because it's Atlanta. We're not doing it right now because there is no traffic. Uh, but man, being able to walk through something like that and, and get my thoughts out of the way, one, I, I think I probably took longer than I should have. I, I'm my own worst critic on this, but two, man, it was great to actually be able to, to run through all of that and get my thoughts out of the way on what's happening right now without having to stop for traffic and, and have a, a, a six minute segment to talk. It's just, it's wonderful. Well, we got to stay with the New York times because th- this actually, this story is actually kind of funny. I wouldn't have thought about this, but this is a real problem. The New York times is, is <laughs> It's raising awareness on NBA stars. Most of them don't actually have basketball hoops at their houses. <laughs> this is many players say they've gone weeks without playing because they don't have a basketball hoop at home and the pandemic has cut off their access to the gym. When he kept getting the same downbeat message from various Miami Heat teammates about their long spell of inactivity, Jimmy Butler knew he had to do something. Again and again, Butler said, he heard the lament. I feel like I'm getting worse. Butler's answer, he paid a company in Utah to send portable basketball hoops to roughly 30 players and coaches to ensure they had an outlet to at least get some shots up, even during a global health crisis. This is what we do, Butler, an all-star swigman said in a telephone interview. This is our coping mechanism. We shoot not the shooting that other New York Times writers are worried about. In normal circumstances, yes, modern NBA players are accustomed to having an overwhelming array of resources at their disposal, state-of-the-art workout equipment, high-tech training software when they're not aiming $170 leather game balls at baskets galore and gleaming practice facilities. This has led many players in recent years to live as close to their team facilities as possible for easy round-the-clock access, even if it meant opting for apartments or condos. Then the coronavirus outbreak created a sudden need for at-home hoops because of the widespread closure of health clubs, community gyms, and public parks on top of the NBA's mandate that all teams close their facilities. Numerous NBA stars have said they have gone weeks without shooting during what would normally be playoff time. Man, I always forget it's May and it would be NBA playoff time. They would, for a winter sport, they'd still be going on into the summer. It's like hockey these days. Hockey sometimes finishes after the ice is melted in Antarctica. Anyway, uh, whoever thought time would get like this where you can't even have access to a basket or a gym, Butler said. Nobody thought it would come to this, but it has. Myers Leonard, one of Butler's Miami teammates, said, I can't remember a time in my life 
since probably third grade that I had gone this long without shooting a basketball. It's been a weird feeling to not shoot, practice, and compete, so it felt amazing to get a ball back in my hands and shooting. Danny Green of the Lakers in a recent interview uh, said he adopted a drill from his youth to fill the void. As long as I've got a basketball, I can shoot at the air and keep a good feel for the ball. That's what we used to do when we were younger. In the bed, lay on your back, and shoot at the ceiling. With the league shut down approaching two months, the New York Times talked to numerous teams about how their players are left hopeless. I'm sorry, hoopless, not hopeless, hoopless by the coronavirus. All these little things, I just, I I, I find it, well, you know, listen, I, I this is a weird situation for people who, they, they can't get into their office, they can't get into their gym, they're a professional athlete, they can't throw a ball, they, nothing. It is weird, the fallout from this. But, you know, I, I'm mindful of the fact someone gave me a quote the other day, and now I can't remember the exact quote, but basically, we are not the tellers of our history. It's going to be 100 years from now when people look back and they write the history, and, and there are going to be all of these weird little stories of, of people who are off their game and stuff because uh, they got sheltered in place for so long. I mean, we're still going to be arguing over whether it was a good policy, but all the little nuances of it. It's just, it, it. life is a fascinating thing. People are fascinating people. Anybody breaking, breaking quarantine to have affairs other than the Imperial College model guy? Welcome. It's Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson. I'll explain, I'll explain. The phone number here is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Neil Ferguson is the guy who came up with the Imperial College model that showed millions dead if we did nothing. By the way, you know, the, the modeling showed if we just do social distancing and stuff, we would get to where we're getting. Um, all the, the model truthers who said that uh, the modeling was all wrong, well... You know, we're in the death range for the models you said were wrong, so maybe rethink that. Nonetheless, a dude is is quit. Um, he Apparently, he's been having an affair. He is single, and he's been having an affair with a married woman who has been driving across London uh, to have relations with him, leaving her husband and child behind, and they got caught. And now it's become a scandal in Britain that the guy who demanded we all shelter in place is letting a woman come over for, for conjugal visits and she's married and has a kid and he had coronavirus. The experts always wind up undermining themselves when they have no sense of humility. And, and he clearly uh, did not have a sense of humility. Uh, and uh, well, now he is, he's, he's off the task force booted. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to, no, I'm not going to say that. No, <laughs> No, he's booted for, no, no, not going to say that. Okay, we're going to move on now. Um, so I've been I, I've been wanting to to give you in the information on how the, the daily charts move on the coronavirus. And I don't want to dwell on coronavirus. There's so much other news out there. By the way, I'll get to this. But have you all seen the videos out of Midtown Atlanta? Uh, there have been massive, massive, uh, crowds overnight in Atlanta uh, for Cinco de Mayo. There were there were pictures of Midtown Atlanta around uh, Piedmont Park, and you had the rainbow flags flying high in Midtown because it's Midtown Atlanta, and you had crowds of millennials uh, all over the place hanging out, uh, drinking on the streets for Cinco de Mayo. 
These are not Brian Kemp voters. None of them were wearing masks. None of them were socially distanced. These are not Brian Kemp voters. Uh, these are our secular millennialist Stacey Abrams voters in Midtown Atlanta. And when they get sick and begin a viral spread again, they're going to blame Brian Kemp. You know it and I know it. They're, they're never going to take responsibility for themselves. They're going to blame Brian Kemp for spreading the virus. Brian Kemp got them sick because they didn't do what Brian Kemp said to do. It's all his fault for letting them out of the house. That's the way this works. Uh, when you've lived in mom's basement for that long and you finally get some freedom, you, you, you have a hard time accepting individual responsibility. You, you know, this goes back to the New York Times piece in the last hour where, where the, the columnist is blasting people who want freedom without taking responsibility. Uh, you know, this goes for the left as well. This isn't just like the right is going out. These people, look at all the people who are in Central Park and Bryant Park in New York City. The left is fixated on beaches in Florida. What about what's happening in New York and Boston and the beaches in California? Not exactly conservative hotspot out there in Los Angeles and Malibu where the beaches are filled and yet somehow it's only conservatives who are doing it. It must be nice to never look in the mirror and see your own flaws because you're too busy uh, nitpicking the flaws of others through nutpicking that they're, they're selective bizarro people. Um, it, it just, just bizarre. Uh, okay. I want to get to this because I think it is relevant. There is a lament now among some experts that you should know that you people are too stupid to be given the daily truth. I did. I regret that I did not save the link, but there was an expert who was quoted yesterday as saying part of Georgia's problem is that they're making the data available in real time and they shouldn't be doing that. They should never show you the seven-day trend line. That's they're actually saying that. And the reason is that they say this could mislead people, which is why I want to focus on May 1st. On May 1st, there were on May 4th at 9 a.m., when I gave you the numbers of how many uh, coronavirus patients there were tested on May 1st, there were 128. By 1130 on May 4th, that number had gone up to 136. And by 1 o'clock, it had gone up to 144. By 4 p.m. on May 4th, the number was at 158. On May 5th at 10.30 in the morning, it was 179. On May 5th at 4 p.m., it was 214 positive COVID-19 cases from May 1st. By the way, on May 2nd, it was like at 30 cases. We're now at 10, 12 on the nose a.m. on May 6th. We now have a 430 cases listed on May 1st. 430 cases on May 1st. Again, we started on May 2nd. There were like 30 cases reported. By May 4th, it was 128, and now it's, it's 430. It's, it's a pretty significant increase. Uh, we have from there uh, 130 cases on May 2nd. 110 on May 3rd, 81 on May 4th, 32 on May 5th, and three thus far this morning. We, we And those numbers will go up, and I've been saying all along, those numbers will go up. But let's get the trend lines out of the way now. On April 27th, 864. On April 28th, 766. On April 29th, 613. On April 30th, 590. On May 1st, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, I was looking at the wrong number. 864 on April 27th, 766 on April 28th. 584 on April 29th, 
5.11 on April 30th, 4.30 on May 1st. The trend lines continue to be in the right direction. And there are experts out there saying Georgia should not be showing you this data. You should only see the total number of cases that come in. Ironically, if you see the total number of cases that come in from May 1st, it's over 1,200 cases. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, we've had an explosion. But that's not really it. What happens is the Georgia Department of Public Health, they place those numbers on the right day. So you get uh, 1,200 cases that come in, but 200 of them, they're from April 4th. 100 of them are from April 20th. The rest of them, they're from May 1st. And, and you add them in and you sort of, and it turns out that day, there's not this huge spike that you would, if you listen to the media headlines, would believe. And, and so now these experts are saying, Georgia's just giving you people too much information. It's going to allow you to check in, for example, like, let me let me do yesterday, May 5th, 32 cases yesterday. You're going to say, oh, there were only 32 cases on May 5th. It's really gone away. And then tomorrow, it turns out there are actually 200 cases on May 5th. What happened? They've rigged the data. It must be a conspiracy. Listen, I know there are conspiracy-minded people out there. What is the Venn diagram on the people who believe the COVID-19 deaths are overstated? 5G is going to allow Bill Gates to control you like a Westworld host and vaccines are bad. I, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, what is the Venn diagram on that? Because I haven't even gotten into the 5G stuff, which is all a bunch of hooey uh, for, from many of the same people who believe that vaccines will, will give you brain damage or some such. But nonetheless, um, the, the, I realize there are conspiracy-minded people out there, but I'm, I'm a big believer that while people are stupid collectively, individually, uh, there are a lot of people out there who would appreciate getting accurate data as opposed to having the media just tell you the nightmare scenarios without giving you stuff. It's it, it's it's a wild ride. It, it, it really is. But, you know, the media has certain framing. Take this Rick Bright complaint. Do you know who Rick Bright is? Rick Bright, is, he was the head of the U.S. agency responsible for developing drugs to fight the pandemic. Rick Bright. He was reassigned uh, by Secretary of Health and Human Services, Secretary Alex Azar. And Rick Bright left. Well, he was forcibly reassigned as Director of Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority uh, from HHS. And he says he was a whistleblower, that he blew the whistle, that the, the coronavirus was coming. He's producing all sorts of memos. Listen. Here's the thing. I, I don't know whether Rick Bright is telling the truth or not. The Department of Health and Human Services says Rick Bright was transferred to a job where he was entrusted with about a billion dollars to develop diagnostic testing. And that things did not go well for him. And now he is, he, he's got a, a government whistleblower complaint. And I, I, I got to tell you, when I read through the arguments, and, and this is not the first this case has come up. There have been a couple of stories in the last week or so. You know, one of the lawyers who apparently is involved in his case is, is Christine Blasey Ford's lawyer. I saw her on TV talking about it. I, I'm, I'm fairly sure that she's connected in some way with it. But what struck me is how the people who are rebelling, if you will, against Trump administration from the inside, the whistleblowers and whatnot, that they are custom tailoring their complaints to maximize press attention. They are essentially telling the story 
the press is already telling. Now, yes, some of you are listening right now thinking, well, maybe it's true and the press is right. Yep, maybe it's true. Maybe it is true. But I've been in the business long enough to know that when the press tells these stories, they tend to get details wrong. And thus far, the press has not been willing to admit what details they've gotten wrong. And so here comes a complaint, and the complaint lines up perfectly with everything the press has been telling us, that people in the administration were warning Trump all along. Trump wanted to, to, to award business to cronies. He didn't take it seriously. Uh, there were all sorts of red flags. Uh, when the president started talking about hydroxychloroquine, hey, remember that? Uh, Rick Bright would say, no, 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 uh, this can't be. It's It's going to be bad. We can't do it. Everything lines up perfectly with every talking point from the media. And I'm sorry, on the left and the right, I am I I am skeptical of these things. Like, for example, remember the complaint over the weekend of the girl who claimed she was 14 and, and Vice President Biden uh, grabbed her inappropriately and commented on her breast size as a 14-year-old. It lined up perfectly with what conservative media has been saying all along with Joe Biden, which is why I didn't talk about it, because my skepticism radar went off. And it turns out uh, we now know that Joe Biden could not have been where it was claimed that he was. Based on his calendar as vice president, he was nowhere near where the event was at the time that the complainant says he was there. It turns out it, it, it's it, but it was the conservatives grabbed a hold of it quickly. Because it, it reaffirmed the Tara Reid story and all the other stories about groping and whatnot and, and gave one more person, one more victim, one more story against Joe Biden. And there should have been a level of skepticism there. And the same holds true with this Rick Bright stuff. The Rick Bright complaint reads like a New York Times story. Oh, We've been warning about crony capitalists and backroom deals of the Trump administration since 2017. I've been complaining since then. And then 2020 rolled around and the coronavirus hit. And I've been saying since January that the coronavirus was coming. And then in February, I have a memo from Peter Navarro, everyone already knows about, that also warned about it. And then was telling them, no, hydroxychloroquine, it's not a solution. Hydroxychloroquine is going to get people killed. We can't do this. And I've been raising these complaints forever. But see, nothing makes sense here because why did the Trump administration keep the guy in that position when he was complaining the whole time because the actual media narrative against the president is that when people complain like this, they boot him quickly. And so they left this guy complaining there since 2017. That None of that makes sense in the timeline when you think about it. Maybe the guy's telling the truth. I have no idea. But it just seems like his complaint is custom tailored for maximum media exposure against the president and not actually about taking down the president or, or addressing some grievance. Actually, it is about taking down the president. It's not about uh, addressing a grievance. It just seems too convenient to me. Sometimes the convenient things are real and true. But many times, it's just to get media attention, and that's what this seems like. Well, they continue to say the quiet part out loud, do they not? Uh, So, you know, the New York Times has an editorial out uh, saying that the DNC needs to vet the Tara Reid allegation against Joe Biden. Well, enter Martin Tolchin. He's a former member of the New York Times' Washington Bureau and apparently played a role, according to the New York Times, in in, uh, getting Politico off the ground. (laughs) Another left-wing rag. Uh, Let me read you this. (laughs) 
People are mad at him for, for saying this out loud, even though they agree with him. I totally disagree with this editorial. I don't want an investigation. I want a coronation of Joe Biden. Would he make a great president? Unlikely. Would he make a good president? <laughs> good enough. Would he make a better president than the present occupant? Absolutely. I don't want justice, whatever that may be. I want to win the removal of Donald Trump from office. And Mr. Biden is our best chance. Suppose an investigation reveals damaging information concerning his relationship with Tara Reid or something else. And Mr. Biden loses the nomination to Senator Bernie Sanders or someone else with a minimal chance of defeating Mr. Trump. Should we really risk the possibility? Martin Tolchin, Alexandria, Virginia. The writer is a former member of the Times Washington Bureau and a founder of Politico. <laughs> wow. You know what? You know what? Okay. I told you people yesterday. Okay. I, I Maybe this shouldn't crack me up as much as it does. I didn't read the full thing yesterday. Uh, now that I've read the full thing to you on the air, this strikes me as deeply funny. I told you all yesterday that... Uh, Biden voters who want to dismiss Tara Reid, they're essentially the Trump voters of the left. And I don't mean that insultingly. It's just that forever, you know, the left said, we would never have a Donald Trump. We would never stand for this. After they, they grab him by the <laughs> video of Donald Trump, we would never allow someone to do this. You got a guy who's accused of actually doing it. Trump just bragged about it. Biden did it. And now you're like, I don't care. We got to beat the other side. <laughs> no, seriously. And all these people, they're going to look in the mirror at themselves. I ain't like those people. I'm sorry. We are not like those people. <laughs> yes, you are. You've become exactly what you say you hate. You've become the caricature you've made of Trump voters. You actually have become that caricature. Suppose an investigation. I'm sorry. I need to do this in my official progressive voice. <clears throat> Suppose an investigation reveals damaging information concerning his relationship with Tara Reid or something else. And Mr. Biden loses the nomination to Senator Bernie Sanders or someone else with a minimal chance of defeating Mr. Trump. Should we really risk the possibility? Y'all have become what you claim to loathe. I mean, he even says, I don't want justice, whatever that might be. I want to win. This is, I mean, in the, the argument in 2016, Donald Trump was best positioned to beat Hillary Clinton. He needed to burn it all down. Hillary Clinton needed to be beaten. The other guys weren't ruthless enough to do it. We needed a win. Who cares about the moral problems? We need a win. That's how the left viewed the Trump voters. And they have become the Trump voters. Martin Tolchin is a progressive Trump voter. 
He doesn't care about justice. He doesn't care about right and wrong. He doesn't care about victims. He cares about the win. And you know what? I'm okay with that. The problem is that the left isn't supposed to be okay with that. The, the, the left claims a higher standard for themselves. But you see that there never really was a higher standard. Uh, it was only useful for them when they could try to, to say that they were superior to the Trump voter. It was only useful in that regard. Now, it's no longer useful because they've got a credible, they don't want to admit it's a credible allegation. Many of them are going to savage Terry. You know, just, 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 we're about to go to commercial break. We, we've got, we got about 40 seconds here. I want you in the five minutes of this commercial break to just, just think for just a moment. Just, just think in these five minutes. What do you think would happen if today Tara Reid came out and said, Oh my gosh, guys, I'm so sorry. I've just been so focused. What I really meant was Trump. Trump's the guy who who grabbed me by the you-know-what in the Senate hall. It, it wasn't Biden. What do you think the media would do? There would be a parade across networks of Tara Reid being interviewed. Tell us where the bad man touched you. If it was Donald Trump, if they thought, good gracious. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I would not be doing what I'm doing in in life right now, but for a friend of mine, Ben Dominich. Uh, Ben and two other friends started uh, redstate.com, originally redstate.org, back when I was a lawyer, and then they wound up putting me in charge of it. Uh, Ben ultimately wound up starting The Federalist. And, uh, you know, so Vox Media decided to unionize. And in unionizing, uh, Ben on Twitter uh, said essentially if, if his employees try to do it, he would send them back to the salt mines. Now, none of his employees would even want to unionize. Uh, but nonetheless, a political activist on the left decided to file a complaint with the National Labor Relations Board against him. And the National Labor Relations Board demanded that the tweet be deleted. And uh, to his credit, uh, Ben Dominich and the Federalist, they are uh, standing by it and sticking to their guns. And uh, joining me to discuss this, and, and I, I didn't even know this was a thing, uh, it's, uh, is uh, Mark Chenoweth with the New Civil Liberties Alliance. Uh, he's the executive director Mark, uh, thank, I, I saw Ben's op-ed in the Wall Street Journal of this. I had no idea something like this could happen. It was just bizarre. It is. It's crazy, isn't it? Well, yeah. I, I, I think you described the situation uh, very well, Eric. But you have, you have a situation where Ben writes a, a tweet, and a random person on, on, in the Twitterverse sees that and decides to make a federal case out of it. And to me, what, one of the things that's so distressing about this is that one person was able to engage the entire machinery of the, of the federal government and launch an entire investigation into Ben when none of his employees objected. None of them had a concern. They all thought it was funny. Uh, and yet we're going to, to, to start this whole investigative process and waste taxpayer dollars uh, on a nothing burger. Well, it, it is. And what I thought was interesting as well as not bad is he, is he mentioned it was a, a left-wing writer who advocates socialism, uh, filed the complaint and then withdrew the complaint. But then a, a, a lawyer on the left picked back up the complaint and proceeded with it. Do I have that detail right? 
That's right. That's exactly uh, that's exactly what happened. And I, I, we don't really know what the machinations were as to why the one person withdrew it and somebody else uh, came in with the second one. But what we do know is once that complaint was made, uh, for some reason, the NLRB took it seriously. And, and our concern is, if you look at the National Labor Relations Act, it says that it has to be an aggrieved party. That's the, the, the sort of technical statutory term, an aggrieved party. And that's always been interpreted to mean it has to be an employee, it has to be a, a union that's trying to uh, actually unionize the employees, uh, maybe a family member of an employee, something like that, uh, but not a random person on Twitter. He's not aggrieved. And yet the regulations that the NLRB has implementing the statute don't carry that same restriction over. They say any person can file a complaint and thus the problem. Yeah, it, it, I, so it, this seems like, man, this seems like the perfect setup for Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, honestly. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> I, I mean, from, from a grief party to, to letting the, the NLRB, and I, I got to be honest with you, Mark, I just, I assumed that all was well with the world with uh, the Trump administration in and appointments to the, the NLRB. We, we wouldn't be having uh, insane things like this happening, and yet here we are. Well, here we are, and, and part of the problem is that the NLRB is an independent agency, and we have these strewn throughout uh, the federal government. And unfortunately, Supreme Court precedent over the years has put these uh, independent agencies somewhat beyond the control of the president. Sure, he gets to make the initial appointments, but unless the members of those agencies do something fairly, uh, you know, not, not just from a policy standpoint absurd, but don't show up for work or, or do something like that, it's pretty difficult for the president uh, to remove those folks. And, uh, uh, and so that's part of the problem. The other problem is you have a lot of career employees within these agencies who have a fair bit of flexibility uh, to take things to a certain point without the, the leadership in the agency either noticing or you know, they have higher priorities uh, until something blows up on them. And, and uh, we may be on the cusp of that here. Yeah, I, I would imagine. So it just, it, it, I mean, it seems like there there is a um, a First Amendment issue here as well. That I mean, it was just it was a tweet, and it, you mentioned there there are no employees complaining. And I, how does shouldn't the First Amendment work in here somewhere? So you would think so, and and certainly uh, humor is protected under the First Amendment. But what the what the administrative law judge who ruled against Ben found was that this constituted uh, a threat. Uh, a, an unfair labor action because it was a threat. And under the law, there, there are certain kinds of speech that, uh, you know, if you, uh, you, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater, I think people are familiar with, with that one. Similarly, in the labor context, if, if, he were, if his employees were gen, genuinely in the middle of some sort of organizing campaign and he were putting out genuine threats uh, to prevent them from doing that, then there would be a role for the NLRB uh, to investigate that. But that's just not the situation that we have here. So there is a First Amendment problem. The other thing that's very strange is that the NLRB is in D.C., Ben and his organization are in D.C., and yet they hauled him up to New York City in order to have this administrative hearing. Usually there's a little thing called jurisdiction and personal right. jurisdiction that prevents agencies from hauling you all around the country to defend yourself. Uh, and so that's an issue in this case uh, as well. Yeah. So you've got an administrative law judge who does this. And 
I, I'm not a lawyer anymore, but a, an administrative law judge is never going to have issue, I would think, with the regulations of the of the agency. Uh, and at the same time, it just, I mean, it it really, I, I'm having a hard time with this one because it really just seems crazy to me that in the United States of America, someone would put up a tweet like this. There, are, No one is complaining. No one's trying to unionize. No one would, would unionize with the Federalist. And yet suddenly here we are. And if this could happen to him, it could happen to anybody. That's right. It could happen to anybody, and, and I think that's, as Ben said in his Wall Street Journal uh, op-ed, the reason he's fighting is that there's a principle at stake here. Could he just roll over, and would it be easier to just roll over? Uh, they're, not, they're not asking for a lot in terms of remedy. Sure, he could, uh, but what happens to the next guy who may not have access to, uh, to, to legal help uh, in, in, a, in a quick way or in an inexpensive, at least for him, way? I mean, we're a pro bono organization where we're providing pro bono counsel uh, to Ben on this because we stand up for principles as well. But the next person, uh, you know, they, may, they may not be in a similar situation. And so he's trying to make sure that we get this fixed now, that the NLRB gets put in its place on this set of issues so that they can't go around ha- harassing other small business folks. Well, let, let me ask you about that. Um, if, if we ultimately work our way up and, and get a definitive ruling on this with Ben, uh, what's to stop another administrative law judge in, say, California within the NLRB? I, I'm assuming there's a, a if it works its way up on appeal, they're going to be bound by the precedent. But uh, these days, I'm a little bit dubious from some of the activists in, in administrative ranks that they would honor precedent. Well, you do see that, uh, particularly if, for example, if we were to get a, a ruling from the Second Circuit Court of Appeals that, that covers uh, New York and Connecticut and, and, and Vermont, and you did have an ALJ in, in California, would they try to pretend that that ruling doesn't apply to, to that part of the country? You could have that, and, and so we might have to uh, to extend that. But uh, but I think that it would at least reduce the chances, and certainly it would put the, the, the leadership of the agency in a position to say, hey, 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 guys, rein it in. This isn't We've already we've already been to federal court once on this. We don't need to stub our toe again. Now, so what is the the state of play? Is it administrative law judge? Will it be appealed into a federal district court or a federal court of appeals or an appellate process within the NLRB? Yeah, so within the NLRB, that's the lovely thing, right? So if in these administrative agencies, and it's not just NLRB, it's the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, the whole alphabet soup of agencies, they launch the initial investigation against you. Then you go in front of an ALJ. Then if you lose in front of the ALJ, which 90% of the time people do, then, you're, then your appeal is to the very group of people who authorized the investigation of you in the first place, the, <laughs> the board at the NLRB. So it's, it's a, uh, it can be a very uh, difficult nightmare of a situation just in terms of the amount of time that is, is taken to try to navigate through this kind of thing before you ever get into federal court. And the other thing, Eric, uh, you, you may know this, but your listeners probably don't. When you're in front of an administrative law judge, the Bill of Rights largely does not apply. Right. The federal rules of evidence don't apply. The federal rules of civil procedure don't apply. This is not an Article Three type court that people think about. And, and the other thing people don't realize, 10 times as many Americans find themselves in front of an administrative law judge every year than find themselves in federal court. And when they do, oftentimes they're, they're very confused because they don't understand why these rights don't apply that would apply in a federal court. <laughs> so did we actually hire Kafka to, 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 to draft this process? <laughs> wow. 
I just I, I knew that the Bill of Rights was an issue, but I, I didn't realize the extent of it. Man, so okay, so what happens next? Um, what's what's the 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 prognosis on this from a legal standpoint? Yeah, so the state of play is that that he now gets to to file uh, some exceptions to the ALJ report, and there's a little bit of back and forth there. Uh, we go in front of of the NLRB and, and see what they want to do with this, and then we uh, can take a, an appeal to one of the federal courts of appeals, and there's a couple of options there in terms of which court. Uh, we can take it to. Uh, but, you know, I, I expect that we won't be into uh, federal court uh, for uh, at least a few months yet. It depends how long the NLRB sits on, uh, sits on the appeal. Uh, but, uh, you know, but by the end of the year, certainly I would think that we'll, we'll have started a briefing in federal court. Good grief. So regular listeners out there, what should they know? What should they do in dealing with a situation like this? Well, they should certainly keep the New Civil Liberties Alliance in mind. If, if we were founded to defend people's civil liberties from the administrative state, and if they are in the crosshairs of an administrative agency uh, like the NLRB, like the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, we, don't, uh, we, we can't jump into every single case that we hear about. But when we see an opportunity, as we do with Ben's, to make precedent and put an end uh, to some of these uh, kinds of tactics, uh, then that's what we're looking to do, and we love to hear from folks. If uh, if they're in a place where that's not a, a possibility for whatever reason, uh, then if they if they can fight, if they if they don't have to roll over, if if their business is is large enough, or they're at a place in their career, what have what have you, that they can fight, I encourage them to do so because our liberties are being lost a little bit at a time with these administrative agencies, and we need to all band together and push back and reestablish the Bill of Rights. There's no reason why we can't constitutionalize the adjudicative processes in these agencies. Well, okay. I was going to make that my last question, but now you've raised another question for me. Uh, we do now have Kavanaugh and Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. There's been all sorts of questions about Chevron raised uh, and what uh, loyalty administrative agencies have to give to congressional legislation and how they can interpret their rules. Uh, how are you seeing this shape up? Uh, I know that there's kind of been a mixed bag thus far between Kavanaugh and Gorsuch on the court, but it does seem like there's some optimism out there now that uh, – maybe we do have a little bit more of a sympathetic Supreme Court towards dealing with the regulatory state. I, I think you summarized it very well. It's a little bit of a mixed bag right now. There is room for optimism. Uh, there have been a couple of cases. Uh, we took up a case earlier this year on one of these kinds of, of deference called Brand X deference. And what that one says is even if a federal court has already ruled to interpret the statute one way, the administrative agency can still come back and interpret it a different way if they pass a new rule. And we said, no, 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 that can't be right. The court did not agree to hear that case. We were very disappointed in that. We thought it was a good opportunity for them. Uh, but Justice Thomas did dissent from the refusal to hear the case with a blistering uh, dissent, uh, taking down Brand X deference, which was interesting because he had written the original Brand X decision. So we at least got him to change uh, his mind. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, we would be willing to go back up with another Brand X case and give it another shot. Uh, the, the num maybe we can talk about this on another program, Eric, but the number of different kinds of judicial deference that take place, uh, you mentioned Chevron, but there's eight to ten different kinds of deference that, that judges are giving these federal agencies, including they have to give deference to the factual findings in these agencies. So even once you get to federal court, it can be very difficult 
because you're stuck with the administrative record you have, it can be difficult to win on a factual issue, even if the ALJ was dead wrong. You, you almost always have to find a legal issue that you can win on and flip the, uh, flip the result on. So, so what you're saying is, is you, you've got no bill of rights there uh, to, to help you when it comes to, to the fact-finding mission at the administrative law judge, and then you're stuck with the facts that the ALJ decided were the facts. That's right. That's right, and, and I can give you some horror stories on that sometime. But oh, it's, uh, so. it's a bad way to be bad way to be sideways. Good grief! Well, Mark, listen, thank you very much for stopping by. I appreciate it, very, and and good luck on this. Wish you the best on this, and and thanks for doing what you're doing. Well, thank you very much, Eric. And if folks want to follow this case or learn more about NCLA, please visit our website at nclalegal.org. Perfect. Thank you very much. Uh, Mark Chenoweth uh, with the, uh, uh, gosh, uh, I started to say the NCLA, the, the um, oh, what is it? The the National, the, the New Civil Liberties Alliance. That's it. Not, I always say national and it's new. New Civil Liberties Alliance, the NCLA. Uh, and just, it's Kafka-esque and people don't realize it within the administrative state. If you're not a business owner, you don't understand just how Byzantine and Kafka-esque all of it is rolled together. And yet, here we are, a friend of mine, going through this process because he dared make a joke on Twitter. So I have had – who did I have on? I, I can't even remember. I, I, I know who I, I had on um, – uh, Mark Davis uh, with the, the Third Amendment, uh, Article 3 project uh, to talk about Judge Walker in Kentucky. If you'll recall, we, we talked about Judge Walker several weeks ago. The left is pulling out all the stops on this guy, uh, including now they've got the New York Times has run a story about Judge Thomas Griffiths on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, now for those of you who don't know what it is, um, the Supreme Court is the highest court in the land. And the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals is considered the second highest court in the land, largely because, well, one, a lot of the judges uh, from the D.C. Circuit Court wind up going to the Supreme Court, but also because a lot of cases from the regulatory state wind up going through there on the way to the Supreme Court. And because the Supreme Court uh, limits how many cases it takes a year, uh, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals tends to be the final arbiter. Whoever controls it tends to set jurisdiction. And you will recall that in the Obama administration, that's why the Democrats scrapped the filibuster. They wanted to pack the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals since they couldn't pack the Supreme Court. There were several openings. Republicans were blocking them. So now the Republicans are rushing to fill seats to get back at the Democrats. One of those is Judge Walker, who is 37 years old. He'd be there for quite a while and is inarguably conservative. He argued against Obamacare uh, when he was in the Senate. Uh, He was a, a Senate staffer. Well, Judge Thomas Griffiths decided to retire at the beginning of the year, and a left-wing interest group has filed a complaint saying that Judge Griffiths essentially was bribed to step aside. He was bribed to move out of the way for Judge Walker, that it was a power play in exchange for money he's going away. And the New York Times actually ran the story without questioning Uh, or really uh, noting, spending a lot of time on the fact that it's a left-wing dark money group that's there to harass conservative judges. There's another hit today on Judge Walker I want to get to in the next hour, but uh, it turns out that Judge Griffiths is resigning from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals not to make more money, but because his wife is in a deteriorating health condition, has been for some time, and this has actually been openly known in Washington, D.C., He's got to take care of his wife. The New York Times 
only today decided to run a new story noting that Judge Griffin is coming public with his wife's health. He didn't want to. But his wife is having to get dragged through the mud now by the media to understand the, the left is playing for keeps on the court. They're, they're doing all they can. They're mad at Mitch McConnell. McConnell is so mad at them now, he's making the Senate come back to vote on judges, including Judge Walker. Well, there's a new attack on Judge Walker, and it's actually an attack on conservative judges. A left-wing group convinced a judicial council to draft a new ethics rule. And the new ethics rule would prohibit judges from participating in Federalist Society events. Yeah, that's it. Uh, One of the people who signed a letter saying this was a bad idea as a judge is Judge Walker. And so now the left is using, the, the letter was leaked. The letter was leaked by liberal judges to try to stop this conservative judge from advancing. Y'all, it it is very clear at this point that uh, left-wing activists within the judiciary are as committed to enhancing progressivism as they are outside. And it's the conservative judges who, by and large, just want to go with the plain text of the law. So here's what the law says. Therefore, we can do X, Y, or Z, or we can. And the left's like, oh, well, but the feeling of the law, we get this vibe from the law that we can do whatever the heck it is we want. It's disappointing to see just how political that's all become um, as the left tries to play for keeps and understands that the president is packing courts. That's actually a really good thing that he's doing. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The third hour of the Eric Erickson show. The phone number if you would like to be a part of the program. What is it? 877-97-ERIC. 877, it's E-R-I-C-K, people, C-E-N-A-K, E-R-I-C-K. So 877-973-7425. Just got sent this, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan to take salary cut. Uh, Lieutenant Governor of Georgia Jeff Duncan announced he will cut his state salary by 14% for the 2020-2021 budget cycle. As we work through the budget process ahead of us, it will be necessary for everyone to make sacrifices. I will do my part and take a cut as well, Lieutenant Governor Duncan said. Uh, The fiscal impact of the coronavirus on our state's budget is severe. The General Assembly is tasked with making serious cuts to government services and programs, which will affect the lives of the Georgians we serve. These are difficult times, accompanied by a lot of uncertainty, but we are all a team and meaningful savings will come as we work together to make the required adjustments. Good for Jeff Duncan uh, doing this. Now, I, I want to. I ran some numbers, and I want to give you some good news because uh, there's so much doom and gloom out there with the virus and uh, the way it's affecting the economy and everything else. Let me give you some of the good news. And, and to do that, let me first give you uh, the update of where we are as a, in the state of Georgia. According to the Georgia Department of Public Health right now, there are 30,526 coronavirus cases, COVID-19 cases, uh, 5,699 total hospitalizations, 1,324 ICU admissions, 1,302 deaths. Keep in mind that the hospitalizations in the ICU, they're cumulative, they're not current. So there are not currently 5,699 people in hospitals, in hospital beds in Georgia with the virus. That's total over time since the virus first hit. That's something we we need to keep perspective on this. There are not currently 30,526 people in the state of Georgia with the coronavirus. Uh, That's total. Most of those people have recovered. Now, to answer the question, because this is the question I get asked the most by people today. 
Why is it that we don't hear about the recovery number? Well, I can give you the recovery. I can give you the answer by looking at the total tests given. Total tests given, 204,137. In order to be certified as lab certified negative for COVID-19, you got to have two negative tests. If we gave everybody who has had COVID-19 two tests to prove that they really are no longer contagious, we would overwhelm the capacity to also test the people who may have it. So they're not doing it. So you're not getting recovery numbers in Georgia right now uh, because if you haven't had symptoms for two weeks, then you are presumed to be cured. Even the asymptomatic people after two weeks are no longer contagious. And so we make you be quarantined for two weeks. Once you've developed symptoms, you you stay in your home for two weeks or stay in a room of your home for two weeks, and then you're no longer contagious. Uh, you need to clean your room because the virus will linger, spray everything with Lysol, and, and then you're okay. So now let me give you the good news because I, I there's other stuff we should talk about, but I, I really do want to spend some time with you on this to put all of this in perspective on why the data really is with the governor. And let, let me just tell you this. I, I say this to someone who fundamentally does believe we should wait another week or two before we really start going out and about. And if you saw the scenes yesterday in Midtown Atlanta, uh, a bunch of, of millennials were hanging out, uh, packed into bars and restaurants for Cinco de Mayo, all of them packed in there, none of them wearing masks, no enforcement whatsoever for social distancing. And uh, they're going to blame Donald, they're going to blame Brian Kemp and Donald Trump at the virus. These are Stacey Abrams voters not doing what they're supposed to do. And they're gonna bl- they're not gonna blame themselves if they get sick and spread the virus to their parents and grandparents. They're gonna blame Brian Kemp. You you should have made us stay inside. It's like so when I was a kid, my dad gave me a, a pocket knife, and I seriously damaged my finger with it. I mean, basically slit it in half. And my first reaction was to tell my dad he should have known better than to give an eight year old a knife. What wasn't, I, I shouldn't have been doing what I was doing. It was, it was blame him. And, and the childlike reaction to these people in Midtown Atlanta, Stacey Abrams voters is going to be the same way. Brian Kemp, you should have made us stay home. Never mind that he's been telling you, if you go out, wear masks and, and keep your distance from people. I got to go to Atlanta today. After I'm done with my show, I got to ride, ride up to Atlanta. I got a, I've got an actual in-person meeting, but I got to wear a mask. So now let me give you the good news, though, to put this in perspective. So we've got uh, in Georgia, 1,302 people have died of the coronavirus. I have this now confirmed by the state. Half of those deaths are in long-term care facilities for senior citizens. Half of the deaths, let me say this again, because this is really important. Half of the deaths are in long-term care for senior citizens. In other words, only about 650 people have died of COVID-19 in Georgia who were not in long-term care facilities. But let me give you some more data that actually it is good news. Only 58 total people. There are 1,302 people who have died of COVID-19 in Georgia, and only 58 of them had no pre-existing conditions. Every single person 
of those 1,302 who died had pre-existing conditions except for 58 of them. Only 22 of those people were under the age of 60. And one of those is disputed. Uh, one of those is a, a 20-year-old, I think a 21-year-old, who gave birth via C-section, had COVID-19 and then died. And the coroner says it was actually a blood clot. It, uh, it was not a COVID-19-related blood clot. It was a uh, C-section-related blood clot. Blood clots we're now finding with COVID-19. Blood, uh, we've been talking about it as a lung disorder. COVID-19 increasingly appears to be a blood disorder and, and prominently, in addition to causing heart damage, causes blood clots. But nonetheless, um, it is, it's, uh, this blood clot for this 21-year-old appears to have been pregnancy-related. So really it would be 57 people and 21 under the age of, of 60. And 28 of the people are 70 or older. We now know from Great Britain that there have not been any cases in Europe uh, that we know of. Uh, it was originally reported as Great Britain, and now they're saying it's Europe. We don't have any evidence of uh, children passing the coronavirus off to their parents. Children apparently can get it, and they can get sick from it. But we don't have any cases of them then making other people sick. This is very much a... Um, a case where the older you are, the worse you are hit. Uh, the worse your underlying conditions, the worse you're hit. And by the way, uh, so, you know, my, my wife's got lung cancer, which is always a, a concern with these sorts of situations. She's in a high-risk category. I've got some lung damage from blood clots uh, several years ago, and that puts me in a higher risk. But do you know who actually turns out to be the most high-risk people? More so than chronic lung conditions, which is crazy. People with diabetes and people with heart disease. Heart problems and diabetes uh, rank at the top of fatalities for pre-existing conditions ahead of lung cancer, ahead of lung problems. Now, you do need to know that uh, a lot of people with lung cancer, they're obviously sheltered in place. As a result, they're not getting it, and so that skews the data some. But overwhelmingly, it is people with heart disease and diabetes who are getting this. Uh, so it, 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 all of this is to say that very few people with pre-existing conditions uh, die of this. About 37 to 38% of the people who get it have no pre-existing conditions. Uh, so just over a third of the people who get it are otherwise healthy people. So all of this is to say you may get it. It's probably not going to be fatal unless you're in a nursing home, and that's a problem. There are 790 nursing homes in Georgia. Half of them have COVID-19. Half of them do not. The uh, National Guard has gone in and tested all of the nursing home facilities except 12 in the state. Those 12 didn't want them in there because they were afraid they didn't have the virus and they didn't want the National Guard to accidentally bring it in. So they closed up shop, which is understandable. Uh, but... Uh, all of this is to say the data is actually with the governor. And when you combine that with the news, it seems like everybody's forgotten. Have you noticed we had this entire White House briefing where the scientist who's on the stage, on the podium at the White House, says that heat and humidity we now know for sure does stall out the virus. And everyone got so distracted by the president suggesting you swallow a UV bulb and inject Clorox in yourself, uh, and he didn't really even say that, that they, they totally ignored the fact that we just had a scientist on stage saying, hey, the summer months are going to help. And that, by the way, I still have this lingering suspicion that that is why there's so much angst over Florida and Georgia by so many people in the media. There's jealousy. There's jealousy. 
And there's this underlying situation where they're afraid if the economy rebounds, it's going to help Donald Trump get reelected, and they don't want to see that. In fact, in fact, there's polling. There's polling. Where is this? Someone sent me this email. Yes, 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 yes. The latest Reuters Ipsos poll found that President Trump has a 13-point lead against Joe Biden when it comes to job creation, up from six points in mid-April. The same poll found President Trump ahead of Biden when it comes to who is better at leading America's coronavirus response. (gasps) What? Yeah. Turns out most Americans think Trump would be better than Biden at, at a virus response. To make matters worse... Politico morning console poll found more than a third of voters believe Democrats should ditch Biden because of the Tara Reid situation. And the Politico says, quote, Joe Biden's biggest job right now is to unite the party after a divisive primary. The Tara Reid allegations aren't helping. Yeah, you're right. Okay, let me see if I kept this old audio. There was an old audio file I used to keep. Um, where is it? Do I have it? No, that's not it. No. Yes, 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 yes. I want to play you a montage, a montage put together by the Huffington Post uh, years ago now. This would have been 2011. 2011. About the Obama recovery. Because remember, in in... Barack Obama came into office in January of 2009. He had a United Senate and House. They were able to get much done with a stimulus program to get America back together. By October of 2009, Obama went to Congress, addressed the nation, and said the recession was over, and no one ever got better off. And ultimately, even the left-wing Huffington Post put together this montage of the president talking about now we got to get now that the recession's over, we got to get back to jobs. This is the time to jumpstart job creation. That is what my economic agenda is designed to do. It's an agenda that begins with jobs. We do have a jobs emergency. President Obama promised an unrelenting, unyielding day-by-day effort by this administration. An unrelenting, unyielding day-by-day effort from this administration to fight for economic recovery on all fronts. To fight for economic recovery on all fronts. Relentless commitment to job creation. I am not interested in taking a wait-and-see approach when it comes to creating jobs. What I'm interested in is taking action right now to help businesses create jobs right now. We don't have time for any more games. The American people didn't send us here to just think about our jobs. They sent us here to think about Theirs. They want us to start worrying less about keeping our jobs and more about helping them keep their jobs. A lot of the debate in Washington has been around health care, so people think, well, you know, I guess they must not be working on jobs. No, we've been working on jobs the whole time. Jobs must be our number one focus in 2010. Saving and creating jobs have to continue to be our focus in 2010. We have to continue to work every single day to get our economy moving again. That means jobs. This is my administration's overriding focus. We will not rest until we are succeeding in generating the jobs that this economy needs. I'm not going to rest. My administration's not going to rest in our efforts to help people who are looking to find a job. Our big challenge right now is creating jobs and making sure the economy 
takes off. Mr. President, uh, I begin by applauding your decision to place uh, the economy at the top of the agenda. With everything else he has in his plate, his laser focus has been jobs, 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 jobs. He's got a lot of things on his plate. He promised at one point that this year would all be about jobs, jobs, jobs. Our number one focus has to be jobs, jobs, jobs. Jobs, jobs, jobs. I noticed the press yesterday, because we had this jobs forum in the White House, they said, Obama's finally pivoting to jobs. Absolutely, they're going to pivot on jo to jobs, jobs, jobs. Pivot onto the economy. Hard pivot. Hard pivot. Tried to pivot. Which is a very awkward pivot. President Obama can pivot. As if what we haven't been doing for the whole nine months, from the day I was sworn in and we started talking about the recovery, was all about jobs. But, you know, folks' attention spans are short. I understand that. The White House wanted this bill passed so you guys could pivot back to jobs. Is pivoting to jobs still the plan? The president's been working on the economic recovery every day that he's been in office. So has he already made the hard pivot to jobs, or are we still waiting for that to happen? <clears throat> the president's been uh, working on the economy since... Uh, since day one. So he, this pivot to jobs has already, I mean, you talk about this the, the year, president has he's going to make a big pivot to jobs. And, and the president has, has are we still waiting uh, for no, the, the president's been focused on jobs. He uh, works on jobs every day. With the number of times that this White House has talked about making a strong pivot to jobs in the economy, is there any concern about pivoting away from jobs in the economy for the next three days in New York? Uh, I've done this a hundred times, but I don't know why I wouldn't do it a hundred and first. Uh, the president's been focused on the economy and, and is focused on the economy and works on nothing more than he does on the economy each and every day. That goes on for another minute. There's no reason for me to do that. I need to go take a commercial timeout. But the point here is this. Joe Biden says he wants to now campaign on having led jobs recovery for Barack Obama. Here's the problem. No one associates jobs recovery with Barack Obama. And that's why polling shows that most voters would prefer Donald Trump to help them get a job than Joe Biden. What a weird pivot for the Biden campaign, but they don't have anything else to run on right now. You know, you're going to hear a lot of conversation today in the media if they can get over their virus fixation with a Supreme Court case that's happening now. Uh, the uh, Supreme Court is hearing the Little Sisters of the Poor case today by teleconference. Uh, and the, the, the pivot on this is about how the, um, about how the little sisters of the poor are forcing women, uh, to carry babies to term when actually it's all about, um, whether or not, uh, government nuns have to pay for abortions. Um, it's, uh, the way this is being portrayed is sad. The way this is being portrayed is dishonest. The way this is being portrayed is problematic, uh, that there are people in the media who cannot honestly fathom the situation of people. I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm trying to carry on a conversation with you and also text my wife that uh, there's a delivery at the door that must be signed for. And the poor FedEx lady has been sticking her head in the window, waving at me <laughs> as if, can you come to the door? No, I'm on radio. I, I, I can't come to the door. So I'm having to try to carry on a thought with y'all and also text the entire rest of the house to please go get the door that, that this package has to be signed for. <laughs> okay. 
now that that is taken care of, let me fix it. It was, it was medicine for my wife that was coming. It was important. Little Sisters of the Poor don't want to pay for abortions in their health care plan. And they won a case before the Supreme Court. And uh, you will recall that the Obama administration changed regulations that carved out a loophole or, or then because of the Supreme Court case allowed a loophole for religious nonprofits. As long as the government uh, will provide you your abortion in some way that your health care plan did not. Well, Little Sisters of the Poor made no changes. And then as a result, uh, Little Sisters of the Poor is now having to go back to the Supreme Court and refight the case because now they're claiming, uh, the left is claiming, that because of the change in regulations, Little Sisters of the Poor are somehow now obligated to do it. It's all about forcing nuns to pay for other people's abortions. And the framing of this on the media that you're going to hear today is that this is all about whether or not women's right to choose is protected. It's not about that. It's about whether or not you have to pay to kill your own kid or make a nun pay to kill your kid. That's that's what the case is actually about. Uh, you want to kill your kid. The Supreme Court still says you have a constitutional right to kill your kid. The question is whether someone else has to pay for your murder. By the way, I, so I got a note yesterday uh, from someone who listens to this program who says it is going to be unhelpful for me in my career in radio to talk like this on radio. That I, I should, I should one, avoid the issue of abortion altogether, and two, uh, that I should never refer to it as killing kids. So that's disrespectful. Well, what the hell is it? Uh, you, you, you rip a child limb from limb and we're not supposed to tell you what it is. We're supposed to hide by the euphemism. I think I'll pass on that. If for some reason I can't become a nationally syndicated radio show host as a result, that's okay. I'm not going to stop speaking truth to try to nuance and make people feel better about killing children in this country. It is Eric Erickson here. Welcome. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Can I just raise briefly, We we don't. I don't want to spend a lot of time on them, but I, I so... We're seeing the commingling of conspiracy theorists out there. Have you heard about the 5G conspiracy theory? Some of you may be in them, and and I don't mean to be insulting to you, but I'm, I'm noticing a near-perfect overlay between people who are opposed to vaccines and people who are opposed to 5G. Now, if you don't have any idea what 5G is, I, I don't, let's see, will my phone do this? So I've got an uh, AT&T uh, phone. Let me turn off Wi-Fi here. I got an iPhone. Uh, it says LTE right now. Uh, I, I got to be in Atlanta for a meeting, an actual live in-person meeting later today where everyone has to wear a mask, but it, it's, it's, it's going to be in person. And when I get up there, my phone is going to shift from saying LTE to 5G, I believe, even though it's not really 5G. 5G is the next generation of cell phones. You know, uh, when when LTE uh, was, which is the fastest cell phone for signal for data right now, when it was first coming up, there were conspiracy theories for it as well, that it was going to give you brain cancer. It was going to, um, the fillings in your teeth would become sore. Uh, what was the other one? Brain cancer, the fillings in your teeth. Uh, very much like, you know, there are people, if you get your braces too tight, you're wearing metal braces, you can channel radio frequencies. You really can. Uh, it's not an urban legend. Um, but yeah, there were the, the fillings would be sore. There was the brain cancer one. Oh, there was one other one. What was it? Uh, I can't remember it. 
but there was one other really good conspiracy theory about LTE. Well, they, they've all come back for 5G. And inevitably, it is not actually people who know anything. And I don't mean that insultingly. But it is the people who are most skeptical of 5G, many of them fancy themselves technologists, but they're actually not. They're not engineers. They're not scientists. And they get online and they self-educate. And, you know, you can self-educate yourself into stupidity. You really can. And they believe all sorts of stuff. It's like, I'm going to get hate mail and I need to apologize to Charlie and Philip in advance because they're going to get hate mail there because we all know people y'all know people y'all are those people essential oils sorry i i i listen it's not to dispute it because we use them in our household too but i i've been told they cure cancer you got, and now you've got this overlap. The people who are skeptical of 5G, the people who are skeptical of, or the people who believe that essential oils are a be all end all to, to humanity's survival. And that's not to say there's not a use for them, just not the be all end all of humanity's survival. And then the anti vaccine crowd, that vaccines are bad, vaccines give you autism and all this. And you can't reason with them. There is no reasoning with them. You just have to be polite with them. And we're, we're in this level of trutherism these days. And, and I don't really understand what it is. And unfortunately, most of the people who try to study this have pre-existing political uh, biases against a lot of the people. Like, for example, uh, in the Christian, particularly the Christian homeschool community, there is a strong segment of essential oil users and of people who don't like vaccines. And the people who tend to study this phenomenon tend to be left of center and they hold those people with contempt and they don't actually want to understand their concerns because they don't treat them seriously going into it. And, and I disagree with their concerns, but I treat them seriously. I Many of these people are my friends. I just disagree with them. And and I, I, I've never quite been able to figure out what it is, but, but I, I do know at a presuppositional level, there is a distrust of modern society and medicine. And and the best I can explain it to you is Bitcoin. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) From one to the, I know this is your wackadoo monologue of the day. So here's my philosophy in life. If I don't understand it, I don't do it. I have like qualitative and quantitative easing and, 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 you know, the, the weird, all the weird financial schemes that people did that led to the 2008 uh, meltdown, a, a very wise billionaire friend of mine, he is a billionaire. And he said, his lesson in life is that if he can't understand it, he does not do it. So in all the wackadoo financial schemes of this this billionaire, he could have been a, a billionaire several times over than he was if he had gone down the road of some of these schemes, but he could never had someone who could articulate it to him and have it make sense. Uh, when I hear people explain uh, not just Bitcoin, but what is the um, – oh, what what is it now? Um, um, oh, gosh. Um, the, the chain, blockchain, blockchain, yes. When I hear people try to explain blockchain, I'm thinking, you people are smoking something serious that I want. 
I mean, a, a blockchain will soothe your hemorrhoids and provide you a quantum password into your bank account. I, I have no idea what this stuff is. And, and so I don't I don't want to have anything to do with it. And I realized I could make money engaged in, in Bitcoin trading and blockchain hoo-ha, whatever, but I don't understand it. And so I'm not going to engage with it. And God bless you if you do. And I find more and more that a lot of people who try to explain blockchain, they don't really understand it, but they read Wikipedia and they've decided they're experts. Um, but, and so I understand that there are people who they don't really understand 5G, what they do understand is that microwaves are bad. If you put your hand in a microwave while it was on, bad things would happen. And and they kind of connect the two on the light wave spectrum, and there are going to be more 5G towers. Those waves penetrate our bodies. that the, They flow through. Wi-Fi flows through us. And they, they understand the basics that it is like, for example, a, a an ultraviolet ray can cause cancer as it penetrates your skin or a, a, um, a cosmic ray. If you're exposed to cosmic rays, it can lead to mutations and that can cause cancer. And these waves are flowing through you and they're all on that same spectrum. So, and so I, I get it. The, I get the basics of the skepticism. I do. Now, I, I do have to say on the vaccine, there's one thing that I think the left doesn't appreciate. I have a number of friends who don't like particular vaccines because the vaccines were based on um, fetal tissue from abortions. And I'm with them on that one, actually. Now, by and large, um, originally, for example, the MMR was based on fetal tissue. The MMR is no longer based on fetal tissue, and I have some friends who don't who won't give their kids the MMR because it is derived from something that was derived from fetal tissue, and they still think the Pope is okay with it. I'm okay with it at, at this point, um, but I, I get that concern. But th- there, there seems to be you know um, people who they, they take a, a kernel of truth and a nugget of nonsense and they breed them together and they just get bat poop. And I, we're, we're seeing this with 5G and we're seeing this with uh, we're seeing this with COVID-19. Do you know there's a poll out that an overwhelming majority of Americans, something like two thirds of Americans don't actually believe the data on COVID-19. And if you're right of center and don't believe it, you think it's less. And if you're left of center and don't believe it, you think it's more. I'm perfectly happy being in the middle where I'm I'm willing to accept the doctors. I know way more doctors who are conservatives than liberals. And they're all okay with the data. And so I'm okay with the data. The doctors I trust and know are okay with the data. And and so I'm going to be okay with the data. And I'm going to treat the data as is. And all I can do is give you the data. And if you don't believe it, that's on you. Uh, but I'm just amazed by this phenomenon now of people who rush out to try to find uh, something that corroborates their previously held belief. They don't want to be challenged on their belief. And oftentimes, I, I find that there, there's this this element there that actually is deeply insulting to you that that you don't have the truth. And, and you know what this, this phenomenon is? It, this is this is where I go on on my my theological riff of the day. Do you know what Gnosticism is? Um, it, we're, what we're dealing with with the the five G skepticism and the vaccine skepticism and the the data skepticism is Gnosticism. Now, let, let me give you, I'm going to do the Wikipedia just, and then I'll explain it uh, to you. Uh, oh, nope, I'm going to go to the dictionary. I'm going to go to the Oxford English Dictionary, 
which has now led me astray. Uh, let's go to the U.S. Dictionary here. Gnosticism. Uh, just so you're, you don't have to rely on me, we can rely on the dictionary. A prominent heretical movement of the second century Christian church, partly of pre-Christian origin, Gnostic doctrine taught that the word was created and ruled by a lesser divinity, the demurge, and that Christ was an emissary of the remote supreme divine being, esoteric knowledge, gnosis, of whom enabled the redemption of the human spirit. And you're like, huh? There's your WTH or F moment of the of, of the radio show. What is this? Here's the thing. Gnostics believed that there was a secret knowledge and that they had access to that secret knowledge. This is Scientology is a cult of Gnosticism. You must pay to gain access to a higher level of knowledge. It is Gnosticism. And that's what happens uh, with a lot of people, and that is the underlying trait of the, the vaccine skeptics, of the 5G skeptics, of, of the COVID-19 truthers, of the essential oil craze, all of that. There's a level of Gnosticism in all of it. It can't be that things are as they are. There must be a hidden truth, a hidden meaning, uh, something that you must find and access. It, it can't be as the world says it is. There must be something else. You know, it, it was very interesting. Uh, John, the apostle John, in, in John 1, 2, and 3, and in, in, uh, in the book of John, you can tell he's writing after all the other apostles are dead. He's writing as an old man. And he's writing largely in response to this growing idea that there's got to be something more. Christianity at its heart is very simple. There is this man named Jesus who turns out to be God himself. He comes to earth to fulfill the promise from Abraham that if Abraham violates God's covenant, God himself will pay the sacrifice for Abraham so that Abraham can have eternal life. So God dies on a cross. He conquers death. He rises again, uh, the second person of the Trinity. Now, all that stuff is not in the Bible, but it's just Jesus dies and rises again from the dead. And if you put your trust in Jesus, Jesus says, repent and be saved. You, you repent of your, you acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of saving and you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you will have eternal life. And that is it. That is the gospel message, the gospel, the good news. Uh, Christ died for you that you may live with him forever. You, you, you recognize you're a sinner. Jesus doesn't want you as you are. You've got to repent. You're, the, the process of salvation uh, the, is the process of sanctification, where over time you become more Christ-like, abandoning your sinful ways because you're drawn to Christ, and Christ indwelling in you helps you. But the basic concept is this. You're a sinner. Jesus has the path to salvation. You want to go to heaven, so you put your trust in Jesus. The end. That's it, in a nutshell. Well, the Gnostics argued that there's got to be more to it. That's too simple. That's too simple. There's got to be a hidden path. There's got to be a hidden way. There's got to be more knowledge. Jesus is an emissary to this remote supreme being. And if you stick with the Gnostics, Gnostics, they will give you the esoteric knowledge that the apostles were telling you. Eusebius, writing in, in the, the history of the early Christian church, notes that when John dies in 100 AD, the shifting of the early Christian writers, Tertullian, uh, one of the earliest Christian writers, and then Polycarp and Ignatius, eventually Irenaeus, Clement, all, all of them, they begin ultimately within 100 years, Tertullian in particular writing, they're writing against the Gnostics. In fact, we know one of Tertullian's great works was against the Gnostics. 
That's actually the title against the Gnostics. And, and Eusebius notes that um, John was writing in anticipation of the Gnostics and the early church writers shifted from advancement of the gospel and explanation of the Christian message to defenses against the Gnostics who claimed that you had to find some sort of secret knowledge to become a Christian. To, to actually gain the salvation Jesus promised, you got to find the secret knowledge. And Gnosticism is pervasive in society to this day in, in all shapes, sizes, and forms. There is, for example, this belief that, I mean, QAnon, I, I think, frankly, is this conspiracy theory is part of it. That, that if you will get into the conspiracy, they will give you the secret knowledge by which you may understand the world in ways no one else does. And there is this desire from some people to gain a knowledge of the world that other people do not have uh, so that either they can feel more superior or they can feel more clued in or, or they think they have more knowledge and so can navigate better. And so there's a deep skepticism of science per se because science lays everything out on the table. And, and here it is and you should be able to replicate it. Well, it can't be that simple, can it? There's gotta be something else. These scientists all tell us uh, that 5G is fine, but I know because I remember my elementary school science that if the cosmic rays come through, this is how we get cancer because they the, the cosmic rays come through. It damages your DNA as it passes through your body. These are on the same light spectrum. Therefore, it must be damaging your body. Therefore, it must be contributing to the rise of brain cancer. And therefore, boom, 5G is going to give us more cancer. And people are literally burning down cell phone towers around the world uh, because of this. You can take a kernel of truth. And then you twist it into this, this amplified knowledge. But you've got to go to the right website or the right person or, or down the rabbit hole in the right forum on Wikipedia or Reddit to find the knowledge or subscribe to the right meme account on Instagram. As opposed to, you know, the world is deeply unfair. The world is deeply unequal. Inequality is real. It sucks. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's, it's all pretty simple the way it all works. There are complicated things, but but the world is kind of obvious. And but yet there are some people who they, they just can't accept it. It's got to be more complicated than that. They've got to go in search of it. And it leads them down the rabbit hole of of being anti-vaccine, of of being skeptical of 5G, of being skeptical of of knowledge itself. There, there's gotta be more complex stuff that I myself can acquire and then teach other people. It's it's all about people wanting to be in charge. And not understanding things. So in any event, um, that that was my random tirade of the day as, as I see this 5G trutherism crop up. And it's the exact same people who are peddling the trutherism on, on a COVID-19 vaccine that somehow we're all going to get brain damage and deformed if we get a vaccine. They're not going to give us a vaccine. If it sterilized the human race, they wouldn't do that. But you can't tell them that because they won't believe you because they have access to a hidden knowledge that we don't have. It just some people need to be deprogrammed. Oh, is this what I is this what I think it is? Uh, yep. Hang on a second. I'm googling. Yes, 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 yes. Um, is so yes. Uh, Ju Judy, this, this is one of those Gnostic knowledge. This is very funny. Um, thank you, listener Chris, for sending this along. Uh, Judy Mikovitz has done a YouTube video with, with some sort of thing. This is on the exposing Dr. Fauci's fraud and pandemic. This is um, America's Voice News. What um, she claims to be un uh, exposing some fraud by Dr. Fauci and Dr. Birch. She was an 
aid scientist, uh, Judy Ann Mikovits. Uh, I've seen this circulating around, and, and so Chris sends in, in in this last monologue, can we believe the story of Dr. Judy Mikovits? Um so she's gone down the uh, she's gone down the rabbit hole of anti-vaccine and conspiracy theories. Uh, she's earned all sorts of criticism. She was arrested in 2011, uh, alleged by her employer she removed notebooks and proprietary information from uh, where she worked. Uh, WPI, which was um, oh, what was the the WPI? Um, yeah, the Whitmore Peterson Institute. She was a research director there. Uh, th- this is a woman. Uh, she the criminal charges were dropped, by the way, in Reno. But yeah, she's now claiming uh, that there is no vaccine that's needed to prevent COVID nineteen. The claims the coronavirus were caused by a bad strain of the flu. Um, that circulated between two thousand thirteen and two thousand fifteen. She's circulating all this sort of stuff. It's not true. But it's, you know, here's the thing. This is the thing that that strikes me. This is my frustration because this is not a this is not a partisan point, although people will hear it as a partisan point. I'm amazed by the number of people who regurgitate stuff that isn't true, but it always reconfirms their worldview. They never have to be challenged in their worldview. There should never be harm in challenging you, challenging you in your worldview. You know, one one of the, the things that happens to a lot of church kids Church kids go off to secular colleges and they're challenged uh, by left-wing academics who don't believe their faith and ridicule their faith. And they ultimately abandon their faith, sometimes because questions are raised that they can't answer because they were never prepared for those questions uh, in their churches. And other times because they, they want to fit in on college campuses. So the the secular professors and other other secular students make it super cool uh, to be secular and, and ridicule the kids of faith. And so the kids of faith have to abandon their faith to fit in. You should be willing to be challenged, but you should be raised to be able to defend your faith. In the same way, you should be willing to be challenged on your worldview. You should be able to confront something and figure out how to fit it into your worldview or change your worldview to accommodate something that conflicts with it. And more and more what's happening on both sides of the of the political aisle is people are finding things that conflict with their worldview and they, they just dismiss it all as not true and then they find the conspiracy theorist who says everything they already believe and, and adds in new stuff and they embrace the conspiracy theorist. And people are buying this anti-vaccine woman nonsense, uh, woman's nonsense uh, and not paying attention to the paper trail of who this woman actually is and the, and the nonsense she's peddled before. Because it confirms to their worldview. It's all 21st century Gnosticism is all that it is.